Nexa, formerly known as Answer One, is a leading virtual receptionist and answering service provider for law firms. Learn more by giving them a call at 800-267-9371 or online at nexa.com. Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Hello and welcome to the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels podcast. I'm Jason Taché, a legal affairs writer at the Journal. Today we're going to talk about criminal records and how they affect an estimated 70 million Americans' ability to move through our society. Once innocuous administrative documents, freedom of information laws, and the internet have expanded how criminal records are used and who has access to them. All of this raises questions around the limits of legal remedies like expungement and sealing. To help me better understand the issues swirling around this topic, I'm joined today by Colleen Chen and Sarah Logason. Colleen Chen is a professor at Santa Clara University School of Law and currently a visiting professor at the University of Chicago, who has taken a keen interest in the uptake of clemency, expungement, and other programs meant to limit the lasting impact on a criminal record. An expert in patent law, Colleen also served in the Obama White House from 2013 to 2015 as a senior advisor for intellectual property and innovation. And in the spirit of journalistic disclosure, Colleen and I have published an article recently on criminal justice system data. Sarah Logason is an assistant professor at Rutgers University, Newark School of Criminal Justice, where she studies criminal justice, law, privacy, surveillance, and technology. Her research examines the growth of online crime data, mugshots, and criminal records that create new forms of digital punishment, which is also the name of her forthcoming book. Thank you both for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Jason. Colleen, I wanted to start with you. What's the problem with criminal records? What harm are they creating? Well, I think the thing about criminal records that makes them really challenging is that they're so easy to access and they're very hard to interpret correctly. So when somebody is trying to make a decision among a lot of candidates, whether it be for a job process or for a housing application or some other uh, decision that requires screening a lot of people, you're going to look for whatever data you can access. And criminal records happens to be data happens to be uh, accessible um, at a much higher level than it's ever been before. And so when it's used, it can be factored into a lot of decisions, some which we don't even know about how they're being factored in, and then uh, put somebody in a category which they don't necessarily belong to be in. So um, I think the issue is that they are around, they're ubiquitous, they're accessible, and therefore they can be used in ways that aren't given the proper sort of personalized attention that they deserve. And so, Sarah, to Colleen's point, you know, the internet has kind of changed the way uh, that we and anybody can access a person's criminal record. I'm curious with your research, like, what are the material ways that things have changed? It's one thing to just put more information online. It's another in the way that it it ends up being used or presented. What are you finding uh, in your research? Criminal records are tricky because they're governed by different public policies depending on which criminal justice agency makes the criminal record in the first place. So police and court records are governed by public record laws, while criminal uh, records or repository records are often regulated by a more restrictive code. So what I've learned in my research is that it's these 
records that are deemed a public record for the function of watchdogging, so you can have access to the courts and the police. Um, those records have been scraped, purchased, uh, downloaded in bulk by by private actors. So I think for me, the most striking thing about contemporary records is that, number one, they exist in many different forms just in government alone and are regulated by different public policy. But then they're also uh, regulated and controlled by the private sector who can who can disseminate records on their own. So so a single person might have many, many, many versions of their criminal record that are all available to the public. And one of the things that you've written about is this notion of the depublishing industry, and this exists outside of the criminal record space. But I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about what depublishing is and whether or not it's legal. Well, it's a tricky industry because a lot of the companies or just private actors that are posting criminal records are doing so not under the guise of being a background check about of under the guise of being um, under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Instead, these are companies that are publishing information for public curiosity, for uh, a people search engines, reputation checks, mugshot galleries. And so this means that a, a Google search for somebody's name will, will pull up all these extra legal records. And alongside that, um, a new industry has emerged that promises people the ability to have their records or their mugshots especially removed from the internet. They do that in two ways. One is by charging really serious fees, uh, which many states have have now outlawed, though it's difficult to enforce those laws because these websites are sometimes housed in other countries or in many different states. Um, and the other is, is now this burgeoning reputation management service companies where they promise you the ability to kind of crowd your Google search results so that your mugshots don't pop up first. Um, and unfortunately, some court documents have shown that sometimes the same actor uh, owns both the, the mugshot website and the reputation management website. So there's a bit of um, shady business going on in this, in this totally unregulated industry. In a lot of different contexts, when you're asking or applying to do something, um, your record is going to come into play. And with the, in the absence of other information, having a record can disqualify you for simple things like volunteering at your kid's preschool or Sunday school, you know, applying for an occupational license, applying for housing. Um, and the problem is, again, that people have served their time. In some cases, they are not even have not even been found guilty. I had a former mentee who um, was accused of a crime, and that was enough to get him barred from doing his work, which was in a public school. But then even after he was acquitted, uh, he was not able to recover from that incident. So the record itself is ambiguous in terms of what it can express, um, especially if the case hasn't ever even been completed, or it may be that the time has already been served, but the consequences from that record continue to haunt the, the, the people for a long, a long time. California, we just passed a records clearance law. It, the legal law includes about 4,800 legal restrictions on people with criminal records, even after they've completed their sentences. And nationally, we are talking about tens of thousands of different types of collateral consequences. So this is what's at stake in terms of having records, like Sarah's talked about, that are unclear or ambiguous, or that have, there are many versions of them that are out there. 
So to that point, Colleen, I, I'm curious either with the law that just passed in California or maybe speaking about expungement and sealing more generally, these were these are policies that are meant to uh, erase, hide, or otherwise clarify criminal records of people society has deemed that are either no longer a threat or, or maybe never were a threat or have reformed um, after so much time has passed. I'm, I'm curious to your view on what the impact of these laws are today and, and whether or not they're the right laws for um, our time that we live in? Well, I think the reality is that there's always been a recognition that because of these consequences that I've talked about, records can have a, a lasting consequence. And so states have made it possible for many years to clear your record by going through a petition-based process where in which you either file with the court or after a period of time has passed and you've completed your sentence, completed any other conditions, go through that process and clear your record. But what my research has found and others have documented as well is the lived experiences of many, many lawyers that there is a problem with the lack of awareness that this this remedy exists with the, all the red tape that it takes to get your record together figure out if you're eligible, file the right paperwork, in some cases show up to court and then get your record cleared, that very few people are actually taking up the remedy that's available to them. And my estimate is that in the jurisdictions where we have good data, it's hard to come by, that uptake has been less than 10%. Certainly in California, there's a study in Michigan that shows in in Michigan, it's been also less than 10%. And I'm in the process now of trying to document on a state-by-state -state level nationally what that uptake gap is. So I think it's an interesting time to be thinking about automation or other approaches that are not petition-based for making sure that people who are eligible for relief can get it. So you mentioned automation, and that can come in, in one of two forms in this space, the best I understand. One is actually creating a technology that helps uh, attorneys or self-represented individuals uh, through the process of filling out and filing forms related to their expungement or sealing. Or it can come through legislation. And recently, Pennsylvania passed something called uh, the Clean Slate Act, uh, which is meant to be this more automated version of the law. Can you give us a little background on what this law hopes to do and, and how it looks like on the ground there? Sure. So, and I think Pennsylvania is um, a great leader in the clean slate movement, but California, as I said, the governor just a couple days ago signed into law AB 1076, which would also automate the delivery of clean records for um, hundreds of thousands of California Californians. Illinois is also going through the same process to clear up old marijuana convictions. So there's definitely a wave of new bills that are now moving through and hopefully will expand. But what that intends to do, the Pennsylvania bill, is say, look, we've had on the books these laws that allow people, you know, 10 years, certain numbers of years after their convictions have been, um, their sentences have been completed. We, we've, put, we've had these rules on the books for a long time, but the community legal services attorneys there, uh, and you know this obviously as well from your own experience, know that just a tiny fraction of those who are eligible have in the past applied for relief. Actually, I'm working with the Pennsylvania AOC to actually get the number of people that have had clearances through the manual process, and it's you know in the hundreds, maybe thousands per year, but they plan to clear 30 million people's records uh, over or 30 million records, not people, 30 million records over the next year alone through automation. So automation makes possible what would take 
years, maybe even decades, uh, hundreds of years to get done through a petition process. And to be clear, the, the AOC is the Administrative Office of Courts in that state, correct? That's right. And before we continue, here's a message from our sponsor. If you're missing calls, appointments, and potential clients, it's time to work with Nexa Professional. More than just an answering service, Nexa's virtual receptionists are available 24-7 to schedule appointments, qualify leads, respond to emails, integrate with your firm software, and much more. Nexa ensures your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 800-267-9371 or visit them at nexa.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. And we're back. Before we broke, we were talking about recent legal changes in the United States to help improve the uptake of expungement and record clearing from a legislative approach. But there's also ways that technology and and non-governmental actors have tried to improve uh, people's livelihoods when it comes to either hiding or obscuring criminal records. So, Sarah... I'm curious to what you've seen. In 2013, Google uh, decided that they were going to delist mugshot websites, essentially make them not show up when you searched for a person's name in the Google search engine. I'm curious, um, having looked at this issue, what you found and and whether or not this was uh, a viable approach to help people out. I think it's a very viable approach. I think that because criminal records are essentially public records, it's going to be very difficult on a state-by-state basis to restrict access to a lot of this data. Uh, But company policy can certainly, you know, change and close the funnel a bit. I think that most people find other people's criminal records in informal ways through Google search for their name. They're typically not seeking out the record. It pops up by other uh, methods. So, So Google has responded to this issue once, but unfortunately, by delisting um, a couple mugshot websites six years ago, they, they really trained a whole lot of other mugshot and criminal record websites on how to be more precise with their SEO. And so the, S, the search engine optimization game is huge for these websites that are essentially monetizing and commodifying criminal records for entertainment, for extortion, or for these sort of informal background checks. And so... It was a laudable move at the time, but the people that I have interviewed, the hundreds of people in my study, have had enormous difficulties getting Google or other search engines to respond to their requests to, to stick with this issue. Um, Google's done this in other domains it's in a, with revenge pornography and bail bonds and payday loans. There's been efforts by the company to restrict content that is harmful, um, but criminal records fall in this kind of funny category because the public really has... Um, a strong belief in, in having availability to that kind of information. And, and that's a question I wanted to get both of your thoughts on. And, and Sarah, I'll start with you. To advocates of publicly accessible mugshots and criminal records, uh, this is really an issue about open government, open court, and the press's ability to seek and publish public information. I'm, I'm curious if either expungement or Google's approach to delisting um, or, or other approaches that maybe we haven't talked about can square with goals of open and transparent government and a functioning press. Yeah, I think so. Criminal records and criminal justice information has been publicly accessible, but through um, a slightly narrower lens of practical obscurity. So I think that, you know, 
the the notion that bulk data and with personal identifiers, including people's names, phone numbers, addresses, height, weight, I mean, that's really just a very valuable data resource for means way outside the criminal justice system. So I think the first thing that, that we can do is, is, is maintain public access, but require the person in the public uh, to to be more specific about the type of record that they want. So simple things like requiring a user login or a CAPTCHA or a paywall um, or disallowing scraping or bulk searches on police court um, and criminal record repository and prison inmate roster websites is just one simple way that states can kind of narrow um, the ability for companies to just wholesale scrape this data and essentially leak it onto the internet. So I think that restricting the data um, doesn't necessarily have to be the first step uh, in terms of, of keeping the open government uh, tenants in place. I think that just limiting the ability to get it in bulk is a really strong starting point. And Colleen, what are your views on that? Often I sit in this weird place where I've done a lot of work on my legal side in the expungement space trying to get people this access. But at the same time, I work in press where the idea that government would tell me whether or not I can access these these public documents seems abhorrent uh, deep in my core. Um, How should we think about reconciling these two competing interests? That's a very challenging issue, especially when you're talking about cases that might have to be partially redacted. Let's say part of the record is expungeable, but part of it isn't. There are legitimate reasons why defense counsel might want access to records to be able to find out what else was happening in that case um, in order to mount a defense. So there are a lot of different, there's research reasons why having access to data is very important for a long-term basis. So I think that, um, you know, these are challenges that can still be navigated. And I point to some of Sarah's work looking at juvenile records and also records in other countries where there has been some partial restrictions that were really meant to address these sorts of issues um, as, you know, should we consider there to be exceptions that are just certain areas are going to be off limits um, or should there be somewhere there is partial um, access that's still required. Now, law enforcement, even under the most generous of expungement laws, law enforcement will still have ability to access records. So in most cases, we're not talking about complete destruction. Um, In most, there will be still access that's preserved. So I think right now, as there are more conversations around what the legislation should look like, there will be some preservation of the record and and ability to access it. But another angle entirely outside of thinking about expunging or sealing records is to just try to remediate the impacts of them. And so things like fair chance hiring or ban the box are also meant to just lessen the consequence of having a criminal record and to prohibit employers from using that information um, in a discriminatory way or even asking for it and taking it into account before the point of offer. So I do think it needs to be a belt and suspenders approach that we can't just rely upon the changed record being the only, you know, in the, in the, in the government repository, as opposed to what could be accessible through Google or what might be asked for in an employment context. We can't just rely on um, a single remedy, but think of it as a, a set of different ways to try to remediate the impact of having a record. You mentioned second chance hiring and, and ban the box. Could you explain uh, for our audience what those are? Sure. So as I mentioned, I think that there's been 
a wave of interest um, by the legislatures in trying to reduce the impact of having a criminal record for the reasons I mentioned earlier. So you could think about one category of those as being forgetting um, and another as forgiving. So I would say in the forgetting category, you would talk about expungement and uh, erasure sort of remedies, but you also could say forgetting means not being able to uh, ask about a criminal record. So ban the box operates to say that that question won't be used in the application process um, until you're at the point of having an offer at which you can then uh, get the information as needed, as relevant to the the job. And of course, it varies based on state. Um, Fair chance hiring laws uh, operate similarly, and they, again, vary by state and consider, you know, for certain occupations where the previous record may not be relevant to the position being applied for, that those will not be considered. So I think, though, there's another sort of wave of efforts that are going on that are on the moral line, along the lines of forgiving. And I would say that the work in the private sector that's going on now to educate employers on the quality and the strong work record of people with records that have been working, there's uh, several studies now about the work performance of people with, with records. And I think there's survey work that's being done by, um, I think it's the Society of Human Resource Management, together with the Coke Industries, to say uh, there are many employers who want to and welcome um, employment applications from those with criminal records. And that's another um, approach to, again, reducing the impact of having that record in the hiring context. Sarah, I want to shift our attention abroad for a second. You recently spent time working from the European Union, which uh, famously has a right to be forgotten within the general data protection regulation. Uh, I'm curious if there's any lessons from this law in Europe, which has received a lot of attention uh, here in the States, uh, for us to be thinking about in regards to criminal records, mugshot websites, depublishing, who owns uh, this data at the end of the day? I I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I think the the biggest takeaway for me is just the notion of centralization of records. And it's almost as if in other national contexts, the criminal record is thought of as a credit report or a medical record. And if you think about it, functionally sort of is, right? These are These are documents and records that uh, shape your life opportunities. And so they need to be managed with care given the gravity that they carry. And so in Europe, each country has a sort of centralized police and a centralized repository of criminal records. They have a system for exchanging information between the countries. Um, And the United States actually has this infrastructure with the state criminal record repositories where local law enforcement and courts sort of forward their information to the state, which then can forward it to the FBI for a national background check. So I just think that states actually have an opportunity to sort of reclaim criminal record information and to classify arrest records, mugshots, court records, anything with people's first, last name, address, those kinds of identifiers, to really put that under the umbrella of their existing state law as it pertains to rap sheets, as it pertains to these compiled criminal histories that do have some European-like privacy protections. Um, Europe is also just very careful about recognizing that these are government documents and that they're managed by by government and that background checks are brokered through a governmental system. Again, states are well positioned to do that if they're willing to spend technological resources on making their repository the sort of de facto place for businesses and other consumers of criminal records to access them. 
from the state. So, so I think we have some of the bones there, but we just need to reframe our thinking about who should be the actual custodian of this, these very important records. To bring the attention back to the United States for a second, um, I, I wonder for both of you, and Sarah, I'll start with you, for those that either practice in this space or, or trying to help people uh, with criminal records or, or those individuals trying to help themselves uh, that have criminal records, are there particular resources that you point folks towards? Absolutely. I think the first thing that people should do if they have um, some trouble with an online criminal record or they're, they're not sure what exists out there is to exercise their right to get a copy of their own rap sheet. So um, each state has a different system of doing this, but it's, people often don't know that there is a centralized repository where they can go first. And in our study, once people do that, they often find a lot of mistakes on that state's version. So the first thing to do is sort of make sure that the state has an accurate version of your record. Uh, that might involve you going to the court and getting the various dispositions so that you can um, remedy any errors or fill in any missing portions of that record. You know, unfortunately, this is very so much state by state, but it's important for people to investigate if they do have some protections against mugshot websites or um, or the ability to serve an expungement order to a background check company. Um, my point here is that the burden is still very, very much on the record subject, getting to Colleen's point about how automation really is going to be a, the best way to move forward with the very important process of expungement. But I think the best thing people can do is to get a copy of their record and bring it to a legal aid office and sit down with somebody and go through it. Um, and to just really kind of have their own command over this information because people are, are terrified of what's on their record. They're confused by it. They're indecipherable. So I think just um, getting some literacy for people and access for people to their own records is a really crucial first step. And Colleen, any resources you can recommend to our audience, whether it be uh, legal, legislative, or, or just self-help? Absolutely. So there's been some great work done by the Council for State Governments, which allows you to navigate to your particular jurisdiction and let yourself also look at whether you're a juvenile or an adult, what kind of record you might have. So once you have the record in hand, after uh, you take Sarah's great advice, you can try to see whether you might be eligible for some sort of um, clearance. So that might be by looking at the website if you aren't, you know, want to navigate to yourself. So again, Council for State Governments has this justice project that uh, allows you to do that work. The Collateral Consequences Resources Center, CCRC, uh, also has resources that are state by state. So those might help you if you're trying to check out your own records eligibility or if you are a legal services provider trying to help your clients. But I think the um, kind of thinking about uh, having a greater impact, partnering with those who have technical skills like yourself, Jason, are coders who are in the community. You can look at the Brigades Program of Code for America, which just did a whole set of expungement activities as part of their National Day of Civic Hacking and also Expungement Week. If you're looking to build infrastructure to be able to process many applications quickly, um, I encourage you to try to look for partners um, in the, on the technology side to develop eligibility tools. And again, I'm doing some work in that area as well. So hopefully we'll have some um, set of tools to share with people in the future. Um, but, you know, on a 
bigger basis, I do believe that there is a moment, a lot of momentum right now for a clean slate in um, across the country as there's uh, success that's being seen um, legislatively as this is something that uh, there's a lot of bipartisan support for. Um, and the studies show that when people do clear their records, now these studies are of people who've done it through petition-based processes, so it's hard to say that they, ex the exact same findings would be um, available for everybody that gets cleared at scale, but the findings are very encouraging about the better outcomes that people have once they do clear their records. So I would encourage folks who are interested in making a broader change to see if there is a movement going on in your state. Um, if there is, join it. If there isn't, think about starting a movement. Again, um, these gaps seem to be everywhere, and there's an opportunity to, to really help a lot of folks by looking into changing policy. Well, there's definitely plenty to explore there and to keep an eye on. But for now, that's the time that we have today. I want to thank you both for taking the time uh, to share your expertise with us today. Thank you. Thanks. Colleen Chen is a professor of law at Santa Clara University. And Sarah Lagason is an assistant professor at Rutgers University Newark School of Criminal Justice. I'm Jason Taché for the ABA Journal Legal Rebels Podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.